Hello and welcome to this 20th anniversary edition of Nightlight. Hard for me to believe. It's very hard for me, always has been, uh, it's been hard for me to do uh, special occasion messages. Uh, I have a hard time doing Christmas messages or Fourth of July messages or things like that. Um, when I was pastoring, I, I was expected to do that, so I did it poorly, or I didn't do it at all, and uh, I guess it's because, for good or bad, I, I have a immature ability to focus on whatever's being celebrated because I'm so full of whatever it is that's motivating me personally. Maybe I should outgrow that by now, but I haven't. So when it came to the 20th anniversary celebration of uh, Nightlight, you know, I've been wrestling around about what what should be uh, talked about. There's so many people we, we want to thank. All of you. I mean, you, you are the reason that not only Nightlight goes on, but you are the reason that much of our ministry carries forward. And uh, I've thanked you for that many times, but never have felt that we were able to communicate adequately how much that means to us. But what I want to do in this milestone time together of commemorating the 20th anniversary is I want to go back and review the very first Nightlight message that was recorded in 1992. And I want to examine some of the highlights of that message in the light of where we are now. And uh, so I'm going to revisit some of that and then at pertinent moments uh, where I feel it's important for us to stop and take a look I want to examine where we really are in our current culture, spiritual climate, and, and uh, discernment uh, up against where we were 20 years ago. So the very first nightlight begins with these words. There are several Greek words for time. Kronos simply has to do with chronology minutes into hours, hours into days, etc. But kairos has to do with a definite period in chronological time which alters events and destinies. It can be a short period, like a sudden wrong move which causes an accident, or it can be a longer period like a civil war or the collapse of communism. But these kinds of events are spoken of as kairos moments in time, a pivotal juncture when nothing after its occurrence can remain the same. It might be easier for people to properly respond to kairos events in history or in their personal lives if only we were able to see them, but we miss them if they're not spectacular, obvious, earth-shaking in the lives of men and women, in the, in the lives of nations and cultures. Great destiny-altering events, decisions, and actions are always at work, but because they may be quiet and unseen and behind the scenes, 
or so slow that there is no immediate manifestation on the surface, those most powerfully affected may be nearly totally unaware of what is happening until it has already set its seal irreversibly. Just such unseen forces are at work in the United States and Europe and in the Western world. And though there seems to be an awareness of great change in some ways, the real issues, those that should so shake us and awaken us that we as Christians are driven by them into our own Kairos moment with God, seem really amazingly unmoved. We may say all the right things in conversation with other Christians We will talk of how terrible this or that issue is and how lost in the darkness the world is becoming. Then we'll speak of the coming of the Lord and part cheerfully, feeling a certain unconscious sense of self-satisfaction that we are in the light and therefore in the know and are not subject to the effects of the darkness we've just been discussing. But if we are really so knowledgeable and so unaffected by it all, Why have we not made a greater impact for good in the culture? If we really were so in tune with the heart of God concerning evil, we would be as a corporate body making far more of an impact, wouldn't we? Well, let's stop right here and come back to 2012. Have we awakened Is there a positive change? Has the body of Christ become far more awake and far more sensitive? Well, yes in some places and no in other places. And I can obviously only speak from my limited vantage point, but I also take in consideration the vantage points of other people who may have a larger view and more access to information that would affirm what I'm saying. But I also have to speak what I sense in my spirit, and I have to submit that part to you for your own discretion and discernment, because I don't mean to imply that I've got some accurate, perfect information from the Holy Spirit that lets me critique the real condition of the church in America. But I personally believe that since... I spoke those words at the beginning of uh, Nightlight 20 years ago, that there has been a parting of the ways in the church. The wheat and the tares have begun to separate. And part of what was called the church has proven itself to be an apostate whore instead of the bride of Christ. Another part of what was called the church has become a broken, humble, submissive, repentant bride weeping and longing for her bridegroom. Uh, The path of the just, Proverbs chapter 4 says, the path of the just shines brighter and brighter until it reaches a perfect noonday. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. We've pointed those verses out before. God is always working in those who long to know him to bring us more and more into conformity with his will, and that will manifest itself 
in the way we live, which will transform eventually, or at least strongly influence for good, the culture. There are tremendous uh, positives taking place in the body. The, there is a, a reversal uh, in some parts of the country where abortion is concerned. Uh, there, there is a tremendous increase in members of the body of Christ turning their attentions toward the sick, the indigent, the poor, the abandoned, the disenfranchised. There is a rise of true concern for uh, real social justice. Beware of that phrase, social justice. It's easily hijacked by left-wing atheist uh, Marxist groups, and people get duped into all kinds of false activity in the name of social justice, when really all they're doing is uh, propagating uh, godless atheism and uh, Marxism. But real social justice, where, where people are laying their lives down and people are entering into the the bad parts of town, whereas up until the 1990s, the church was wholesale abandoning the bad parts of town for the suburbs where they could build nice big fancy air-conditioned buildings and provide basketball goals for white kids who already had more basketball goals than they could use and abandoning the really broken parts of the city. That that trend seems to be reversing. Um, and we'll have more to say about that, but I want to I continue now here with uh, the 1992 original Nightlight. Most of us, if we've walked with the Lord for very long, are aware that we do not know ourselves very well. We recognize a few surface problems in our character that we would like to change, but it would take the revealing power of the Holy Spirit to ever get us to really face where we are in our private lives and to confront the deep, dark, destructive issues that we've been avoiding. Unless they are so obviously active in our lives, then we have no choice but to face them. Even then, most of us would not know where to begin to put right what's wrong in us without the help of loving support, pastoral care, and in some cases, intense counseling and healing prayer. Let me stop there and say that in my experience, I have noticed a, 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 a marked increase in people either confronting the brokenness of their private lives with a desperation that that brings them to repentance and really, really dealing with God, or they are being driven by their unrepentant lusts and struggles and hatreds into an open rebellion and abandonment of their pseudo-Christian facade. That, again, is a part of this separation. Everything is becoming what it really is. I've been saying that now for several months. Everything is becoming its true self. If you're falling apart, fall apart in the hands of Jesus. If the pain you've been suppressing or ignoring or trying to play like isn't there by keeping yourself busy, even with Christian activity, if that's beginning to no longer work for you and your world is falling apart, then blessed are you. This is a good thing. This is the best thing that could happen to you. 
breakdowns are breakthroughs if they're done before the cross, if they're done in the presence of the Lord. If you're going to fall, fall towards Jesus. And so uh, when, when we reach those times of brokenness where we really are totally unable to fix ourselves and we know it and we can't fake it anymore and we can't cover it up with religion, we're in maybe the best, well, not maybe, I know it's true, the best possible place you could ever be. And God has been trying to bring you to that place for a long time. So if you're there now, or someone you love is there now, then thanks to thanks be to God for it. I, I'm praying. One of the things I'm praying for those that I love and those that I'm responsible for is that the Holy Spirit will not allow any secret sin or any areas of, of uh, willful uh, double-mindedness to allow to be allowed to to remain that the Lord will purge out of me and out of uh, our marriage and out of our family and out of our uh, ministry, any mixture, anything that would give uh, the enemy a landing strip. Uh, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets you and run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God for us. And so that's that's where my heart is set more than it's ever been in my life. And I believe that the shaking that has been taking place in every area of the culture, you can't name an area that is not being shaken. Let the shaking happen because the purpose of the shaking is so that that which cannot be shaken may remain stable. And so if you're going through that kind of shaking, it's so that God can bring you through the shaking and establish you as a man or woman of God who is unshakable because your life has become uh, a kingdom, a kingdom life, a life ruled by the king of the kingdom. And we just don't realize how much false religion we operate in until uh, it has been shaken and, and until it's been tested. Uh, I hear it, I, I think I've heard it probably from at least a half a dozen people in the last six weeks. Uh, statements people have made something to the effect of, you know, I really thought I was a serious follower of Jesus. And then this thing happened. And, and lo and behold, I found areas of my heart that were as antagonistic and, and unbelieving and rebellious and angry toward God as if I had never known him. And I was shocked myself, they've said. And I can say it with them. I've gone through times in my life like that. But, you know, shakings and purgings are necessary, but they are not supposed to be the normal Christian life all the time. You're supposed to reach a point, and, and that's different for every person, and only God knows what it is. But you ought to eventually be reaching certain areas of your of your Christian life where you are no longer shaken by anything. I mean, Peter makes the statement, I can't remember the, the reference now, but uh, he t I think it's in Second Peter chapter 1 where he says, being terrified by nothing. 
Peter is writing at a time when Christians are being tortured and murdered by Nero. And he says, you know, there comes a point where you are terrified by nothing. Well, I'll tell you, the only way you ever get to where you're terrified by nothing is that you have come through a process of purging and cleansing so that you can say, like Paul said, I know whom I first believed in, and I have become persuaded. Persuaded, see, that's a process. I have become persuaded that he is able to keep safe that which I have committed to him against the day of evil. Well, what is it that you're terrified of? How many of us are terrified of something happening to our spouse, something happening to our children, something happening, you name it? I know whom I have believed and I have become persuaded that he is able and will keep safe that which I've committed to him. So when you find yourself terrified, then you know that there's things you have not committed to him. You're still holding on to them and thinking that you've got to protect them in your own strength. Oh, how many parents have gone through this? How many times have I gone through this with my children and grandchildren? Anyway, we don't know ourselves very well. And uh, I think now, I, I spoke that in 1992, and I say now in uh, 2012, we are beginning to come to know ourselves well because we are beginning to be shaken to the point that we can no longer hide behind religion. So please don't be, don't be upset at the fact that you're upset. Um, don't, don't be afraid of the times when you think your faith is gone and you're angry or upset or frightened or whatever it is. God, you know, God's not going to tentatively hold you until you misbehave and then drop you. He's holding you for the purpose of exposing those things in you. Anyway, well, look, I want to shift gears a little bit and go into another portion of this uh, original message from 1992, and let's, t- let's talk about politics. All politics is derived from ethics, and all ethics is derived from moral law. So it is ridiculous to speak of value-free politics. But the church must learn to manifest the spirit of truth in all of its statements of policy before it can have the moral authority to be, to be heard. By being more concerned with justice for Christians than with justice through Christians, we diminish the church from a powerful prophetic force to merely another special interest group demanding its own rights. Now, let me just uh, address this in the light of, of the current warfare we're in especially here in North Carolina with the current, the current uh, uh, voting issue regarding same-sex marriage. Um, if we don't become involved in politics, quote-unquote, we're not involved in anything that matters because we're living in a culture now where politics 
seeks to control every area of life. So if you think it's possible to just be quiet and mind your own business and just very quietly, passively love the Lord and love people and not get involved, uh, there might have been a time in our history when that kind of uh, passive Christianity could function without compromise or without being completely overwhelmed and, and run over like a steam engine. But that's not true anymore. The, the nature of the beast, and I use that term figuratively and specifically, the, the nature of the beast is to try to control and, and conquer every aspect of life and drive God out of it. So your quiet Christian testimony eventually gets confronted by the opposite spirit. And when it is, you're going to have to take a stand one way or the other on many issues. So, um, you know, when, when Paul was, was put in prison illegally in the book of Acts, you know, he was, he was beaten illegally. He was imprisoned illegally in uh, Acts chapter 16. And you know, the story, you know, they, uh, he, he is confronted by the officials who realize they are in big trouble because what they did to Paul was a capital offense in Roman law. They could be the ones imprisoned and killed for what they did to Paul. And Paul knew that. Well, they wanted to come secretly and and call Paul out of jail and just quietly get him out of the picture. And Paul said, oh, oh, oh no, no, we're not doing it that way. Uh, you get your, uh, your, your head official to come down here. And boy, they did. They came down there. And Paul held their feet to the fire because he knew that what they did was illegal and he wanted that confronted. So you don't have passive little super spiritual Paul saying, let's don't make waves, let's be loving, let's be whatever it is that we're thinking we're being when we don't confront evil in the context of the culture that we live in. And living in a nation, as Americans do, where our very government was established in order that freedom would be ensured and protected, makes us more responsible to stand for truth politically than maybe we would be responsible if we were in a government system that we did not have the 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 say under and the ability to speak into and the power to alter and to uh, maintain. So we're, we're doubly responsible to stand politically. Now, having said that, what do we have here going on in North Carolina right now? We've got uh, uh, a vote. 60% of the state voted that man and woman together is the only definition of marriage. But just a few miles from this spot where I'm sitting, we've got some Baptist pastor who plops his arrogant self up in a pulpit 
and blusters and spews and sputters and becomes uh, the, the, the perfect gift to the homosexual activist by saying from the pulpit that uh, all gays should be gathered up and put behind an electric fence so they would die out uh, because they wouldn't be able to propagate. I mean, not only was it ignorant, it was hateful. Not only was it hateful, it was stupid. Not only was it stupid, it was so opposite of the spirit of the gospel that I can't think of anything worse except Westboro Baptist Church out in Kansas. It's worse. But not only was it the opposite of the gospel, but this character has now made himself a laughingstock among the very people he was trying to rebuke, and that he's given them a perfect gift by by uh, providing for them the kind of religious buffoonery that they try to make all of us appear to be. On the other hand, uh, I have an acquaintance who stood for the marriage amendment and uh, was highly instrumental in making sure people were aware of what the amendment said and uh, so they would know how to vote. And a very prominent, wealthy businessman in our area who tries to pass himself off as so loving and so kind and so caring, uh, sent word to her that he intended to do everything in his power, which is considerable since he's a millionaire, to destroy her and her family. And so, you know, we're way beyond where we were in 1992. But the, the spiritual principles are certainly the same. Let me continue reading here from the original Nightlight. In many parts of the body of Christ, it is popular to be aligned with what is termed politically conservative positions. In arenas like the family, abortion, gay rights, pornography, this is an obvious alignment. From my perspective, you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and affirm the breakup of the family, the murder of children, homosexual activity, or pornography. But in areas where social responsibilities call for Christians to give to the poor and defend the fatherless and care for the widow and the orphan, there has been a marked departure from biblical Christianity among many conservatives. Concern for those in prison among many conservatives doesn't exist. And uh, actually what is what was opposite, what was really going on in some conservative circles was the idea that if they are in jail, they ought to be, and obviously we should make it as miserable for them as we possibly can because they deserve nothing else. Uh, that attitude has produced so much evil and so much injustice in the, in the uh, court system perpetrated by self-righteous conservatives that I probably should not go off on that subject right now. It would take up all the oxygen in the room and my head would explode and ruin my headphones. Let me continue from 1992. It's not the call of the Christian to support handout programs which give welfare recipients largesse from the government 
in order for them to be able to have more children out of wedlock so they can continue continue to receive more and more from the government so that the government can keep a self-perpetuating uh, constituency. But it is the responsibility of the church to go to the welfare recipient, not only with the gospel, but with the tools, the time, and the compassion necessary to help them come up out of their cycle of imprisonment that liberalism has placed them for the last 50 years. The old saying that God wants us to do well so that we can do good, Deuteronomy 8.18 says, the remember, or remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to get wealth so that he can establish his covenant in the earth. The track record of conservative conservative evangelical Christianity in this arena is not what we would want to present on Judgment Day. Now, let me just stop and, and comment there. Giving among believers has greatly increased. At the time I did this message, it was estimated that maybe, maybe 5% of Christians gave sacrificially for the gospel. 5%. The majority of confessing Christians in 1992 gave much more uh, to their own pleasure and their own welfare than they gave to, to minister the gospel or to minister to the, the hurting. Do you hear what I said? 5%? Now, 20 years later, has that improved any? On paper, it doesn't appear to have improved a great deal, but what you've got to understand is over that 20-year period, there have been millions of Christians who have been frustrated by their denominations, stopped giving to their denominations, and rightly so. Who in the world wants to give money to a denomination that wants to affirm everything that we're opposite of? And so a lot of statistical record-keeping concerning who gives and who doesn't doesn't include the, the millions of dollars given by believers sacrificially in order to support ministries that are not recorded among those record-keepers. Okay, So this is another example where statistics can be terribly misleading and misrepresentative. But even still, from all I can gather, it still looks like the church in America gives about 20% of its entire income toward the ministry of the gospel. Now, I was sitting with a, with a man a few days ago who is a, a pastor in Kenya that we support. And he said to me, with no whininess, no self-pity at all, he said to me, Clay, he said, some days our children don't eat. He's, he's talking about his orphans. He said, we go days and days without any food. But he said, God always comes through. Someone always comes through. And, and then he just began to give praise to God uh, for, for all the good that does come. Now, two hours after that conversation, I had another conversation with a pastor locally who has been uh, called to a church in this area. And he said, the reason I'm struggling about whether to accept this position or not is because in my interaction with the leadership and our dis discussion of the finances of the church, I discovered that they have $87,000 stuck back in an account specifically for are you ready for this? 
cemetery upkeep. And my first response to him was to say, well, by, by all means, you should take the pastorate. You should take the leadership. And the first thing you should do there is uh, uh, let them know that you're going to spend all of that money to, to go on and have their funeral because the whole church is obviously dead. And they need to be buried as soon as possible so they don't stink more than they already stink. Well, he is taking the leadership there. I don't know if he'll deliver my message, but I hope he'll deliver God's message. The point is, 80 is just so it was so illustrative to me. I mean, you, you think I'm making this stuff up sometimes, probably, but you, you just have to know what goes on in my office in a, in a given day. Sometimes, the the contrast, the remarkable contrast of a, a faithful. Kenyan pastor who's laying down his life and he he needs chicken uh, uh, barns and he, and he he needs uh, uh, I, I won't even get into it now just ba the basic necessities of life uh, a, a couple of thousand dollars would set him up in in aspects of his daily ministry that would change the course of their life and we got a church here that's got $87,000 stuck back so they can keep their blasted cemetery looking pretty. Anyway. The United States, in the past 15 years, has experienced unbelievable growth financially. So I said in 1992. But like so much of our culture, it is void of any solid inner reality. Credit card debt was $50 billion in 1981. By 1988, it was $180 billion. The ghost of the scandals of the 80s still haunt us today. Conservatism cannot fully answer all the questions of moral irresponsibility that lie at its door. So Christians, to be fully Christian, cannot align themselves as fully liberal or fully conservative. It is not our responsibility to ask a hungry man what his politics are. It is our responsibility to provide for him spirit, soul, and body and to help him learn to provide for himself. If he is willing to work, we're told to help him. If he's not, we're told to love him and give him the gospel and to keep on trying to get through to him until there is real change. George Gallup compared the behavior of churched and unchurched in a variety of categories and found, quote, little difference between those who attend church and those who do not. He found that only 25% of evangelicals tithe. While 40% say faith in God is the most important thing in their lives, those who make between fifty and 75000 a year, give only an average of 1.5% to any kind of charity, Christian or otherwise. This same group spent 12% of their income on leisure for themselves. In 1984, the highest percent of church money was spent on cushions. The church seemed to be taking most care of the part of its anatomy, that was the most active. In 1992, we were not only a economically misguided and materialistic church for the most part, but we were also a morally bankrupt church. Just as today, 20 years later, I believe there is a 
a, a true awakening among God's people regarding our use of money and a, a godly reappropriation of uh, stewardship. In the same way, there is today a restoration of moral conscience in many, while other parts of the so-called church seem to be heading more and more into debauchery and apostasy. In 1992, I said, a morally bankrupt church is obviously powerless. It is weak, impotent, and the object of deserved scorn and ridicule. Notice what the scriptures say about the relationship between moral weakness and prophetic and political weakness. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15 and chapter 32, or verse 32. If you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to obey him, there shall be no might in your hand to deliver. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 10. The strength of the burden bearers is decayed because there is still so much rubbish. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 1 through 3. Woe to you who go to Egypt for your strength, who take counsel but not from the Lord. Your strength shall become your shame. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 9. The wise are shamed and weak and taken captive, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. The moral bankruptcy, which in part has contributed to the modern church's current preoccupation with therapeutic labels, psychological redefinitions of man's sinful condition, and a nearly endless victim mentality on the part of some, is directly the result of this last great failure of the church. In fact, all that we have said before of the failings of the church can be traced to this major issue. The church has failed to preach the gospel. Now let me explain what I mean by that, because there's lots and lots of preaching. How can I say we've failed to preach the gospel? It would be far too simplistic to say that the spiritual failing of the church is in its failure to preach. There has been an avalanche of preaching, but there has been very little preaching energized by the Holy Spirit and informed by good theology and true psychology, followed up by real discipleship. Again, I remind you that I'm reading from 1992. In a moment, we'll examine where we are now in re regard to this. But I'm going on to read from the original message. Don't misunderstand my statement a few moments ago about the danger of current psychological influx into the church. I believe that this is dangerous only insofar as it seeks to replace the message of the cross and repentance with a new vocabulary of endless diagnoses which excuse sin and blame shift. But it is the church's failure to maintain a full theology of man which has opened the way for these false psychologies to enter. They can only enter a place that's empty. The church has for all practical purposes lost the soul of man. And in many circles, real preaching of the gospel means that you point to them um, that they're going to hell, point them to the cross, set them on a pew, and wait for the rapture. But in the meantime, all that is human 
their emotional life, their sexual desires, their artistic gifts, their mental struggles, are to just be ignored, put, quote, under the blood. And I do not say that with disrespect to the precious blood, but disrespect for the religious way it has been misused. Because it has come, in, it, it has become in many instances a religious euphemism for going into total religious denial of the facts and uh, keeping people in religious bondage. I went on to say in 92, the denial of the gifts of the Holy Spirit by the same part of the church that is also denying any need for psychology or, psycho or counseling brings to mind C.S. Lewis's statement about the educational foolishness of his day when he said, you remove the organism yet demand the function. This is what the anti-Holy Spirit, anti-counseling part of the church has done. They have removed the organ which brings wholeness. They have even tried to remove the human help that could help move people in that direction. But then they wonder why, after removing the legs, there is so little walking, and re after removing the ears, there's so little hearing. The failure of the church to maintain a Holy Spirit-ruled ministry has not only crippled us in effective ministry, but helped push us right into the political dilemma we spoke of earlier. Without the power of his presence, we have no other choice but to fight fleshly battles with fleshly weapons. When these four failures of the church are seen as resulting from the final failure, the failure to honor and respond to the living presence of Jesus among his people, then we must go back to the example set for us in Scripture and see what the Church of Acts did in response to social, moral, and political pressures. Am I saying that we should not take full advantage of our constitutional rights and fight when necessary to ensure those rights? No, I'm not saying that. We should by all means support the works of organizations like the American Center for Law and Justice, or the Rutherford Institute, or many other organizations that have grown up over the past 20 years since I originally wrote these words. We should rejoice every time Jay Sokolow wins a court battle and encourage our children to manifest open Christian witness in the school systems and so forth. But on the other hand, the redneck attitude, which I described previously in this local preacher, this redneck attitude that is very prevalent in some grassroots American Christianity and is itself anti-Christian is one of the great hindrances to the flow of the kingdom of God. It was 20 years ago, and it still is. The attempt to politically deal with forces that are rooted in spiritual power opens us up to being taken over by that very power we claim to be opposing. We do become what we don't forgive. And though we are never to forgive evil in the sense of excusing it, we are to forgive and love people. There is a great danger, for instance, in becoming no longer pro-life, but just anti-abortion. As demonstrated when the anti-abortionist Michael Griffin shot Dr. David Gunn to death in Florida. Is this the norm among demonstrators? Obviously not. If it was, then the Florida case would not be so notable. It would be the, it, it would be the norm. 
but does it spell out in de- demonstrable form a parable of the danger to come if we do not become baptized in the Spirit and in the love of God and in the wisdom of God to learn how to fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons? Yes, it does. Theodore Weld, an effective northern abolitionist of slavery, actually withdrew from the activism of uh, the anti-slave movement during the 1850s because he said he himself needed to be reformed. He admitted that he had been laboring to destroy the evil of slavery with such burden that he had become infected by the spirit of his antagonists. Os Guinness reports that one Republican legislative assistant on Capitol Hill told him that after several weeks on the receiving end over a school prayer bill before the Senate, he was subjected to so much profanity and foul language that he had been denounced he had heard denounced on television by the same people who were using the language on him on the telephone. We can't help but wonder if at least some of the current violence and rage exhibited by the gay activists, remember I wrote this 20 years ago, we can't help but but wonder if at least some of the current violence and rage exhibited by the gay activists is not at least in part a reaping of seeds sown by such bumper stickers which said, for instance, quote, kill a queer for Christ which sprouted up all over Dade County, Florida, in 1977 during the political battle there. One very vocal public leader called the homosexual opposition human garbage. Now, once again, let's pull back and examine this in the current uh, state of affairs, not from 20 years ago. I had a conversation today with a man who is a respected counselor and writer, He comes from a state with a governor that is lauded by the right as not only an effective right-wing legislator, but as a Christian. My friend happens to go to the same church that the governor attends. He explained to me that he uh, sat down with the governor before he was elected and had a lengthy conversation with him about the spiritual battle behind the current sexual issues. The governor's response, or the governor-to-be, who was elected shortly after this conversation, he responded to this man's explanation of the spiritual dynamics behind sexual brokenness. By wrinkling up his nose and saying, that's the weirdest stuff I've ever heard in my life. It's a gump, It's like the implication was it's a bunch of gobbledygook, uh, psychological and spiritual gobbledygook. And the, the, the attitude was we just need good, hard political statements that will build a wall against the influx of, of anything that makes us uncomfortable. And I thought as I was listening to the testimony of this man how timely it was for me in the light of this message that I'm trying to draw together for Nightlight. Because when I pray, folks, 
and again, this is subjective. I, I ask you to judge it. I'm not asking you to take it as thus saith the Lord. But when I pray, I feel as much danger on the right as I do on the left. And I do not believe that it, some of you may really react to what I'm about to say, and I understand your position, but I do not believe it will matter who gets elected president unless there is a transformation in the heart of God's people about kingdom reality and how we, his people, are to walk in it. And I want to tell you, I'm the first to admit how easy it is to be trapped into a political mindset of us and them and to begin to hate my opposition. I want to tell you, when I read some of the uh, uh, printed material put out by the gay activists in the hopes that they can get it in the hands of of uh, 12 and 13 and 14 and 15-year-old children, there's a part of me that would like to see every one of them arrested and incarcerated for child abuse. And uh, anybody who thinks that that statement is hate speech is practicing hate toward the children I want to protect. But see, part of the curse of a nation that's turned away from God is up becomes down and down becomes up. That's the very meaning of perversion. It means to be, to be turned upside down so that evil is good and good is evil. And that's why Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 5, Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. So today we, we've got activists who say, Decent people will want us to be able to marry uh, our same-sex lover. While indecent people are the people who want to protect their children from the outrageously perverse sexual antics of many, not all, but many of the gay activists who seem to delight in getting up in public forums and using the most vulgar language they can possibly uh, verbalize uh, in order to shock as many people as they can. I, I, you know, even the most perverse pagan married couples, I've never known them to do such as that. So, you know, there's got to be freedom to call a spade a spade and to call evil evil. But I want to tell you, the whole time I'm doing it, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, and don't, see, be careful here, don't, don't, don't react to what I'm about to say in the wrong spirit. How many of these bullies are bitter, hurt children who were themselves bullied? And if you want to say that that doesn't matter, then you are really part of the problem exactly the way the activists are accusing you of being. Because if I'm not just as upset over evil done to them as the evil that comes through them, then I am unjust no matter how I believe I'm speaking justly. No matter how righteous I think I am in my cause, if my righteousness is willing to overlook their mistreatment just because their current behavior is an abomination to me, 
then I'm still not acting in full righteousness. Now, I'd like to, I'd like to make this a, a happy, clappy, enjoyable celebration of the last 20 years and uh, not get into these painful subjects. But see, this is what I tried to tell you at the beginning of this time together. It's very difficult to spend a lot of time looking backward when there's so much right in front of me that is urgent, vitally urgent. And uh, I, I, though, though I know I'm speaking to the choir for the most part when I'm speaking to Nightlight, I, I'm not speaking to rednecks who like to bang the Bible and cuss and spit and talk about hanging queers. Uh, that's not who Nightlight is. But I'll tell you that with all the awareness I have of the call of the Spirit to, to stand in the gap and to not give in to hate, I get pretty angry as a father and as a grandfather when I think of what my children are being subjected to and when I think of what they want to subject all children to. And so I have to keep myself before the Lord. And remember that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And I have to let the Holy Spirit direct me in what battles I'm to fight and what battles I'm to leave to others. Because I can't, I can't fight on every hill. Um, we talk about a lot of different kinds of battles that are going on, but I can't deal with every one of them. None of us can. And so we have to be respectful for those who are called to deal with uh, pro-life issues and those who deal with uh, women and children uh, shelter issues and those who deal with feeding the poor and those who deal with digging wells in Africa and those who deal with political battles like the American Center for Law and Justice. Everybody is fighting their particular battle in their particular arena. And so what I'm trying to sum up to say to, to us to the, today in this final uh, few minutes we have uh, God is using invisible small groups of people or I individuals, unknowns. You'd be amazed at the miraculous events taking place in the lives of little-known anonymous people who are just walking with God and serving Him the best they can in the daily grind of their lives, in the drudgery of everyday life, they are walking out the gospel. And remember, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, it's unfortunate that we preachers have made that a, uh, an imperative. Go. We preach it as go. That's not what it says in the Greek. The Greek is, is a, a, a participle. As you go, preach. As you go. And that should take a, a lot of burden off the backs of people who think because they're not giving themselves to full-time ministry in going into all the world, that somehow they're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus said, as you go, that means to the grocer, as you stand behind the, the counter and, and sell groceries, to the football coach, as you go on the field to do uh, calisthenics, to the school teacher as you stand before your class, to the uh, person across the street that uh, 
doesn't have a, a vocation per se, but they're a good neighbor, they're a good friend, and they love the people around them. They're praying for the kingdom to be manifested through them in whatever they're doing, wherever they are. Get You've got to get off of your back the feeling that because you're not in, quote, full-time ministry, that you're not among those who were told to preach the gospel as you go and do it in whatever form you are able to do it. Now, in the closing minutes that we've got, let me withdraw from the 1992 Nightlight message and my commentary on it in current events. And let me just talk to you for a few minutes about where we are in the ministry now and some of the things that are just ahead for us. Many of you know that we've been through a long and difficult and demanding battle trying to get uh, the marriage celebration album released. I am holding it in my hand today. It arrived about 30 minutes before I began this recording. God, a man, and a woman. Celebration of marriage. And it's finally available. It, uh, I was told by several people who didn't know each other on different occasions. People spoke to me prophetically. Don't be discouraged by the hindering of this project's release. It will come out at a time that is strategic to the subject. And lo and behold, it comes out in the month that the state of North Carolina is fighting uh, to protect marriage in its biblical definition. Uh, it's a small token in the battle. I don't expect the release of a music project to turn the tide, but to whatever degree it can comfort and, and, and strengthen marriages and encourage single people and comfort divor uh, divorced and widowed people, uh, yes, even divorced people can be comforted and helped by it. Uh, it wasn't done for entertainment, though we hope it will be entertaining, but it was done uh, in the spirit of healing, which we've done with all of our music. The other thing that I want to mention to you in the 20th anniversary commemoration of, of uh, this ministry, because this is not only the 20th anniversary of Nightlight, it's the 20th anniversary of mine and, mine and Mary's ministry together, and it's our 20th wedding anniversary. So we re-released Against the Night, which was born 20 years ago this month. Uh, before Tom Howard died, Tom told me that he had every intention of going back with me into the studio to reproduce Against the Night with full orchestra and chorus, to do it on the level that it was originally written for. It was written to be done as a full uh, live musical production with orchestra, chorus, and different solo vocalists. In 1991, when we recorded it, before we were released in 92, we did the best we could with what we had, and the result has blessed a lot of people. With Tom's passing, the hope of being able to do that uh, died with him because I couldn't do it without Tom's expertise and an orchestra genius. So uh, the genius of Mark Spencer's original score is still intact. We've remastered it and re-released it with a new cover. And uh, for those of you who've never heard it, we want to commend it to you. 
for those of you who grew up listening to it, who may be interested in this re-release, uh, we want to make you aware of it. The um, third thing that I want to mention to you in commemoration of the ministry is something that I had no idea we would be uh, even considering doing, but suddenly, over the last few weeks, we have gotten a number of requests for an album produced in 1976 called Just Because I Love You. For those of you who have a copy of Mercy for the Memories, you know that Just Because I Love You is one of the songs on that album. But that song was actually written in 1976 and was uh, the title of that first Nashville production that we did. It's uh, it's embarrassing to me. I mean, this is this is bell bottoms and disco. I mean, I'm not doing disco, but I mean, it's that it's that era. So, from a musical standpoint, it's you know not very uh, ego building for me. It's an embarrassment. But I learned a really hard lesson when a, a lady came to me and asked for that album a number of years ago. And in my silly little egotistical, embarrassing response, I, I made her feel ashamed for even asking. I talked about how old it was and how unimpressive it is and what a poor job I did on it and on and on and on. And I realized after I rattled on for a minute that I was hurting this woman by my remarks. And when I shut up and she had a chance to speak, she said, well, you know what? Maybe you don't think it was good, but it was the most comforting album in my musical library during the 70s. It saved my life. It carried me through hard times, and it kind of hurts me that the man who wrote it and sang it has such a low view of it. And I'll tell you, I learned a really hard lesson. I hope I learned it. That if I had done it for the glory of God, it wouldn't matter how embarrassing it might be by today's standards. I would just be grateful that the Holy Spirit was still wanting to use it. And so, with that in mind, we're out of time. I'll have to say goodbye. But uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for 20 years of support. May God guide us through the next 20 years or whatever time is left before we see his face. Lord bless you all. We'll talk again soon.